The emergency services that struggled to deal with the devastation of the Christchurch earthquake in February received widespread praise for their efforts from international counterparts. But how did they manage to deliver a world-class response? In this Radio New Zealand Insight programme, Philippa Tolley has been finding out. After the 7.1 magnitude earthquake on the 4th of September, Christchurch residents thought they'd been hit by the big one and that mercifully no one had died. The devastation of February was a whole new scenario. Oh, there's a big earthquake. Are you still there? Are you still there? Are you still there? I lost you. Are you still there? I lost you. The emergency services were asked to cope with a citywide tragedy. The Canterbury Police District Commander, Superintendent Dave Cliff, describes the enormity of the task. Pretty well immediately after the incident, the staff that were working were very much involved in uh, assisting all the other emergency services and running through streets trying to rescue those who could be rescued. For example, one of our staff accompanying surgeons who were here on a course um, running through the streets, triaging those who'd been injured, um, arranging for medical care, um, pulling people out of rubble. Uh, in fact, there are so many amazing stories of heroism by our staff, plus members of the public, plus the other emergency services. Buildings throughout the central business district suffered major damage. Facades fell in the street, windows shattered, walls and ceilings crumbled. But the two worst sites were multi-storey office blocks. The five-storey Pine Gould Corporation building imploded. There was an initial violent shake and, and um, then it was really disorientating because things started tipping and um, it, it, it was, it, the noise was phenomenal and... It dropped, yeah, yeah. But um, it was so disorientating, you couldn't actually uh, um, tell what was going on. So we were we were surprised to when it stopped that we, we were on, we were we weren't ground level, but we were close to. We we were helped out of the wreckage by um, people on the street when we started calling for help. Yeah, they um, helped us out. They actually climbed up onto the wreckage and. Um, and helped us out through what, what openings there were. Fourteen people died at that site, but the biggest loss of life was at the high-rise Canterbury TV building, although there as well there were amazing stories of survival. My son's alive. He was on the fourth floor at the community clinic, and he just walked straight out of the building just now, and we've been waiting for four hours, four and a half hours for him, and he's just got scratches on his head. He's been texting us. I was on level four, an earthquake started, I thought it was, I just didn't take no notice of it, and then next minute you knew, we were all in darkness. They dropped below, but I was on an angle, so a bit more and I would have got dragged straight down, so I just tried to stay in one spot, about five hours it took to get me up. The destruction wrought in Christchurch and witnessed by the rest of the country via radio, TV, cell phone, pictures and video was shocking. One of our staff was involved with a surgeon and the amputation of one individual who was trapped in a building. Now he had to sit with and assist the surgeon while you know the amputation was going ahead. Probably one of the you know one of the most challenging situations any person could face. Another with you know surgeons running through the streets triaging and saying you know this individual can be saved, that one can't. You're going to need to leave that one and move to the next one. 
I mean, those situations in New Zealand um, it was more like probably a war zone in the hours afterwards rather than a, a civil situation. But the fact that um, in the face of that sort of level of adversity that people can stay focused, they're not overcome by stress and they've got that overriding objective of looking after people is an absolute testament to the, to the nature and courage of our police officers. What we've uh, suffered is a major uh, disaster today. There are still people trapped in buildings. We've got urban search and rescue teams, police officers, ambulance officers working to get those people free. There are Every single ambulance that we have in our city is out on the streets and we've also now used a wider range of other uh, auxiliary vehicles to help with the process of getting to the people that need our help and need to be got to uh, medical attention quickly. Uh, that's why it's really important not to travel tonight. That's why we're saying don't travel, stay at home, go to your neighbour's place, look after the people in your street, do the things you did so well on September the 4th. Those are the things that will make a difference tonight and we have to understand that we've got tens of thousands of people uh, just like me who are feeling very scared, very worried and very uncertain about what this night will bring and frankly very, 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 very depressed about what we'll hear tomorrow. Search and rescue staff, including more than 400 international personnel from seven countries, struggled with dangerous conditions over the next 10 days to find survivors. But in the end, the last person found alive was removed from the Pine Gould building on the Wednesday, 25 hours after the quake. Our reporter Gail Woods was watching as the last survivor, Anne Bodkin, was gently lifted from the building. They're bringing her out right now, yes, She's on um, a sort of a movable ladder on the back of a, um, a fire engine and she's wrapped up in blankets. She's got one of the, uh, the rescue officers is with her. She's been in there now for over, she was there for 25 hours and apparently um, was under a chair for most of last night. She was able to move around. It's just... The most amazing thing, we've watched them edging Anne out of that building now for over uh, an hour. I've got to say, this is, a, this is a wonderful moment. We've finally got Anne out of the building. Although no one else was found alive, the Area Fire Commander for Christchurch, Dan Coward, says everything that could be done was done. It was probably one of the... It's, it's one of those scenes that you expect to see elsewhere in the world certainly not in New Zealand but certainly not in your own back door. I believe that everything that the guys did was with the absolute best intentions was with their guts and determination to find people and they, they achieved an amazing feat in those first few days. The death toll initially had been expected to be over 200. As the grim work of searching the rubble went on there were some positive moments such as at the cathedral where it was thought at least 20 might have died. Rescue workers had been amazed not to find any bodies after removing tons of masonry and I saw the scale of the work when I went to the cathedral later that same day. The narrow square interior of the spire has now been scraped clear and all that debris is compacted and, and pulled to one side. The steel props are holding up the wall which was also part of the preparations that were made before the rescue workers could actually go in and check that entire area inside the spire where the top of the building collapsed down inside and where it had been feared more than 20 people might have been crushed. It was just after one o'clock this morning when and we were expecting that we, when the phone went it would be time for us to 
to don our, our clerical gear and go in and expect to be saying prayers with the dead. And Ralph Moore, the urban search and rescue in charge guard, they're just fabulous people, uh, just gave me that news and I just burst into tears. It was just, just astonishing. I was just speechless at that news. The number of dead who have been identified and named now stands at 169. 181 were reported missing and are presumed to have died. But the police say it may not be possible to identify the remains of 12 victims who died at the CTV building. The fire service's Dan Coward says although New Zealand is a small nation with relatively restricted resources, it's the support in times of emergency that makes a difference. In terms of that initial response, there were crane drivers, there were construction workers, there were lawyers, nurses, there were just the general public there alongside firefighters and it's amazing, you know, firefighters are trained with the equipment and the resources and, and are expected to cope in that sort of environment. And here was the general public standing side by side assisting and, and getting that initial response and recovery and rescue of people. When we got the international teams in, we were in a position where we were able to box above our weight and we consistently see that with, um, with our organisation, with our, um, our colleagues and other, like the police and the Defence Force in terms of the roles that they play internationally. I think it, it was just... Um, an, an environment where relationships with partner agencies, the competency of the people and the general support that allowed the whole operation to run smoothly um, and allowed for it to be recognised internationally. That praise for the combined effort and planning was echoed by the British search and rescue team and its head, Peter Crooks. The organisation here has been absolutely outstanding. It's the best organised emergency I've been to. The support we've got from the locals is fantastic. And the work that the first teams did here, because we obviously came in a couple of days in because of the distance, uh, the work that the first crews did in the New Zealanders and the Australian guys was unbelievably impressive. The Mayor of Christchurch, Bob Parker, spoke of an utterly extraordinary, almost overwhelmingly positive response. But he acknowledges there will always be those who feel they needed more help. That's different to being able to satisfy everybody two or three days after the event itself. But, uh, no, I, I actually think it's been unbelievably good. We're in unexplored territory here. I mean, this is a, uh, a, a well-advanced, uh, normally very safe uh, community. Uh, there are not many cities in our position in the world that have had to deal with not one but two massive earthquakes within six months. Uh, I think right across the board. Uh, it's been an extraordinary response to absolutely extraordinary times. The state of national emergency has been rolled over in the weeks that followed the quake. In extending the state of emergency, the Civil Defence Minister, David Carter, has spoken of the considerable work still to be done and the need for a wider range of assets and powers than those available under a local emergency. The National Controller for the Earthquake Response, John Hamilton, who normally is the Director of Civil Defence, believes that despite the tragedy and extreme hardship many have suffered, the preparedness of the people of Christchurch shone through. Everywhere you go there are, there are amazing stories of, of not only self-help on the afternoon of the earthquake uh, and the ability to, to help neighbours even in some very extreme um, uh, circumstances, the ability to survive in some pretty awful conditions without power and electricity and, and water and, and sewage and things are, are out there, which is all in accordance with the, with the doctrine, if you like. Someone's just come around delivering water and neighbours are lending barbecues and another one needs a gas bottle. I'm very happy for the help we've been offered. 
I had a three and a half thousand litre pond there, but it's about three quarters full with mud and goo now. Uh, some of the fish are still surviving. But the great thing is just the neighbours, everyone's talking to each other and offering to help each other. And in fact, you get to meet neighbours you've never spoken to all these years. We're the garage signers. You're welcome to come and grab some water. But they do recommend that we boil everything, including the stuff that's coming in the tanks. But if you just want to get in and get the stuff, you're welcome. Yeah. And there's a chap from this street who was working with his bobcat in someone else's street there. And he said, look, when you see my bobcat go, there's a few houses that might need a little bit of help. So we said, oh, OK, we'll come over. And so we brought a convoy over here and arrived here and just, you know, we almost just cried because it's just such an insane amount of damage in here. So we just helped, helped him and his um, friends here yesterday. We just figured there was so much to do, we'd come back again today. But John Hamilton does admit there were problems in understanding the needs of all the communities affected by the earthquake. The Prime Minister heard a few of the complaints as he toured eastern suburbs just over a week after the quake. There's nothing being put in this area, so yeah. what's, yeah. what's going to be That's happening with that? also happening, as I understand quite quickly, okay. but um, what street are we in? Waitaki Street. Waitaki, OK. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, we've still got... Our house is still safe to live in, but um, we don't really want to uplift the kids even more no. if we're happy to stay in the house, so um, okay. just a toilet would, or something would be great. There's elderly, there's couples that yeah. have no storage, there's stuff sitting in sewer because yeah. they've got nowhere to put it. Yeah. And they just want to move on, they want yeah, to be sure. paid out. You have to be patient. You, you've got to understand that there's thousands and thousands of telephone calls all coming in at once. It seems quite random who gets what, and there's real pockets in the community that have had not even any portaloos or um, chemical toilets, but not even any flyers in the letterbox, and it's those people that are really isolated, I think, and disconnected are the ones probably the most stressed. Those needs were something that had never been encountered before. It may be a weak excuse, but um, again, the scale is kind of beaten us. As I've said to a, to a number of community groups, who on earth would have thought that you'd be scouring the world for additional portaloos you know, hundreds of portaloos or 30,000 chemical toilets. I mean, it's, it's, it's that sort of thing. It's, it's just unprecedented. And, of course, because of that, um, it takes some time to satisfy demand. The work to restore all important infrastructure was applauded by Bob Parker, who said it was no less important than frontline emergency services. I think everybody across the field has worked as hard as they can in the areas of responsibility they have. I mean, the uh, USAR in terms of the urban search and rescue people being a relatively new organisation in terms of public awareness uh, has, has probably exemplified for many people uh, bravery and courage. But I don't uh, think that, that in, in, in essence, the people who have been working 24-7 on pipes, on getting wastewater plants working on getting out the streets and clearing the silt, not only thousands of council workers and contractors, but students. In a way, there is nobody who is any less important than anybody else. And if there is a lesson that comes from this, it is exactly that, that you cannot respond successfully unless your community as individuals are prepared to be engaged and see themselves as part of the greater civil defence emergency management framework. While many were discovering the strengths of joining together as a community to support each other, the police were dealing with not only the emergency tasks, but more normal duties as well. Superintendent Dave Cliff says such an event uncovers the best and the worst, heroic behaviour, but also self-centredness. In the face of um, this sort of situation, 
you know, 99% of the population are fantastic people, and we all see that with the way that people behave every day. There's a small population, small percentage of the population who, you know, for want of a better term, we could call criminally inclined, and they'll try and take advantage of it. They'll um, try and steal property. Um, they don't worry about other people's welfare. They only consider their own. So business as usual, ensuring we've still got patrols to attend to family violence, that we're stopping drunk drivers and locking them up before they kill someone on the roads, um, that we get some people who behave in stupid and erratic ways, that we can stop that. That's really important. So that highly visible police presence out there doing all the normal things that police have to do is really important. While the emergency services have been lauded for responding in an exemplary manner, lessons are always learned from putting planning into practice. So much work is still to be done and there's been little time for reflection, but already services are aware of areas where more work can be done. Even a matter of weeks after the event, the issue of communication has surfaced on several occasions as an area where improvements could be made. The fragility of mobile phone networks has become evident, as the fire services Dan Coward explains. I think our resilience with um, modern technology in terms of telecommunications, we, we worked really well in terms of having radio communications, which is our you know our mainstay, but you know when, when the cell phone towers go down, when the power goes out to them and, the, and there's not a lot of backup, a lot of people uh, from a work environment and a personal environment, you know, they rely on their cell phones for so much. I know personally, you know, trying to get in touch with family members down there and not being able to get through to anybody because there's no cell coverage. So it's about um, our resilience to some of those network issues and, and what do we need to be doing into the future around that. With those systems not functioning, police had to find other ways to get information. One of the lessons that we learnt really early on was the massive importance of intelligence, which is finding out in real time what's happening all over the city. So one of the things we put in place this time were field intelligence officers, and their job was to get around the cordons, get out into the communities, um, go along to the public meetings, be built into the emergency um, coordination centre as part of civil defence. We did that before, but ensuring that information comes back very, very quickly to tell us what's happening is hugely important. So when we make decisions about where we're going to send staff, where the reassurance will be, what support families need, that we've got the best information. Lessons had already been learnt from the first quake in September, and for the fire service, that was a positive emerging from a negative situation. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we had the September 4th uh, earthquake, and that was followed up again by the Boxing Day earthquake. A lot of the things that we learnt uh, about our strengths from the last earthquake we were able to put into practice yet again and sort of build on them. So we went from being in a strong position to a stronger position uh, this time around in terms of our response, our resourcing, contacts and relationships. One of the key lessons that, that we really learnt was about our ability to resource that. We are not, we're a national organisation, so we can call upon national resources really quickly. And that was one of the key things, getting people in from all over the country to boost the ranks, uh, the number of people on the front line, the resources that we had, and we're able to really build on that really quickly and, and learn that we can hit the ground running really fast. One area where calls have already been made for improvement is in the rules and regulations surrounding the earthquake proofing of buildings. The focus has been on the dangers posed by heritage buildings and an inquiry by the Department of Building and Housing will examine why the more modern Canterbury TV and Pine Gould Corporation buildings collapsed. It was a painstaking effort to search through the rubble of these disintegrated buildings where a significant number of people died.
The inquiry will also look at the Forsyth Bar Building and the Hotel Grand Chancellor, which both suffered severe structural damage. But despite the destruction, the National Controller for Earthquake Response, John Hamilton, believes New Zealand has a good understanding of the threat posed by seismic activity. He believes this country has demonstrated it has building and design codes which take the risks into account. There are, however, problems with public understanding. The building code is not, to, not intended to allow all the buildings to stay standing. The, the goal uh, is, is to get as many people out of a building in safety as, as possible. And, and you know, apart from those, uh, those uh, examples, which are now going to be subject to a Royal Commission, I think the, 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 the results have been very good. That strong commitment to planning is what Superintendent Dave Cliff believes enabled such a comprehensive response. When Howard Broad was appointed as the Commissioner, I was at National Headquarters as a superintendent, a newly promoted superintendent, and Howard was absolutely adamant that our response to national crisis had to be um, the best possible. And he was really instrumental in ensuring that right from the outset of his um, tenure as Commissioner that we had regular desktop exercises, how we're going to deal with the national crisis, which translated into and sometimes two- and three-day exercises that we all trained for um, in the command roles all of um, the police districts are involved in that process. In fact, the, you know, the thing I've highlighted is in the, in the immediate um, year preceding the September earthquake, we'd had five training exercises with us and partner agencies around how we would deal with a, with a national emergency. So when the September earthquake occurred, we were very well versed and trained in what we had to do, and so were our staff. And then the September earthquake really provided an amazingly timely platform for testing all that in a real situation because when the February earthquake occurred everyone absolutely understood their role and what they had to do. All the services are deemed to have performed well but the police district commander Dave Cliff has special praise for those involved in disaster victim identification or DVI. I'm proud of all of um, our staff and the way they've responded but my hat in particular has to be taken off to the DVI team you know, dealing with um, those who've died, being enormously respectful to the feelings of family members from a whole raft of cultures, the work that the family liaison team has done with so many different families from so many different cultures, from so many places around the world, and just absolutely respecting the individual needs of those families and keeping people informed has been, I think, an absolute tribute to the um, to the calibre of our people. You know, it's deeply emotional work, that process, and they have done it in an incredibly professional, courteous and sensitive way. That sentiment was echoed by the London Metropolitan Police Commander, Nick Bracken, who brought a team of 10 British disaster victim identification experts here to help. I had the privilege of commanding New Zealand officers in Thailand um, and I think the New Zealand DVI officers uh, are amongst the best in the world. Um, I don't mean this to be sort of patronising, but for a, a country, uh, a small country population-wise, I think your DVI team punch well above their weight. The lessons from the events of February the 22nd will be considered for months to come. But John Hamilton says they will provide valuable information for the future. There are some issues which are uh, hard and fast and have, have gone very well. And there is some changes to be made in emphasis probably, particularly around being able to plan for a longer-term response than the, than the short-term stuff that we tend to do and instill that sort of planning discipline about understanding what the requirements are, 
what your options are and implementing them to the best effect. It's a huge experience and I think it's going to be valuable for the future for civil defence across the country. Lots of other cities are watching this with interest because, you know, there but the grace of God would go I sort of thing for some other cities and uh, there are lessons to be learned. Dan Coward is positive about what's ahead. I mean, myself, I'm not from Christchurch, but I see Christchurch being rebuilt. It'll be a different and a new shape, but it will, it'll be rebuilt. It'll still have the Crusaders, and it'll still have the Crusaders winning matches time after time. That whole sporting and fortitude will exist, and, and it'll just grow stronger, and I see that in the staff already when, when they're not at work, they're around at their colleagues' place helping, and you just see that spirit everywhere in the community. And the Christchurch Mayor, Bob Parker, sees a lot of work, but a bright future. I think that in the years to come, Christchurch will be a boomtown, exactly because of these hard times we are currently going through. And our job now is to make sure that we put the framework down for that in planning and by example in the coming years. You might see Christchurch back to normal a lot quicker than 10 years because I think there is an opportunity here to do something remarkable, to do something which is aesthetically... uh, connected to the heritage and we'll rebuild a lot of that heritage, the core iconic heritage, we must save, we must rebuild it because that's the story of the families here it's the story of our life here and it's the story of us so uh, we'll draw on that to help us create an even more beautiful city That Radio New Zealand Insight programme was written and presented by Philippa Tolley. Additional reporting from Christchurch by Rachel Graham, Marcus Irvine and Bridget Mills. Technical production was by William Saunders.